An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is law professor Jennifer Tao. She is professor of law at Western New England Law School, but is perhaps better known as her book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White-Colored Crime, and for her media appearances analyzing corporate governance, white-colored crime, and banking and financial market regulation issues. I first met Jennifer when she was Associate General Counsel for Church Fidelity, and we bonded over corporate governance issues. She and the late Vanguard founder, Jack Bogle, were the two guests who interviewed me and my co-authors on stage for my book, What They Do With Your Money. She's gone on to teach at various law schools and is a vigorous legal scholar and researcher with a myriad of peer-reviewed articles for her first book, Other People's Houses, how decades of bailouts, captive regulators, and toxic bankers made home mortgages a thrilling business, followed the financial crisis, and was called a must-read by no less an expert than Neil Dorofsky, the Inspector General of TARP, the government's main program that prevented general financial system collapse. Jennifer's research is methodical, but anything but dispassionate. To read Big Dirty Money is to become angry. To quote one review, quote, be prepared to blow your top. It's likely that you'd be familiar with most, if not all, of the crimes that tell details. But having them all in one place is like eating a plate full of habaneros. You'll get red-faced, bug-eyed, sputtering, and pretty righteously hot under the collar. Welcome, Jen. How are you? <laughs> I'm only laughing because um, I have acquired a taste literally for uh, hot sauce, uh, including habaneros, uh, peppers, over the years, bit by bit. So I guess I have also increased my tolerance um, for crime and corruption over the years. And, and uh, But yet still, sometimes, sometimes the audacity does uh, get me hot under the collar, too. Before we get to that. What's your origin story? I mean, your bio reads like an establishment person, Yale undergrad, Harvard Law School, sits in a major law firm. That's pretty established, not, not someone who would rock the boat the way you do. How'd you become the person you are? I think of myself as an outsider who wanted to make sure that I got all of the insider credentials so no one could ever accuse me of sour grapes. At least that was my thinking as, you know, a middle schooler. I was, if you can believe it, when I was a young kid, uh, I was growing up in Michigan and I, you know, I was fortunate to go to a private school um, where you could set your sights on colleges back east. My parents were graduates of the University of Michigan, huge football fans. That was the expectation where we would go. And my parents said to me as a young child and to my brothers, 
Uh, Michigan is where you'll go unless you get into, quote, a better school, end quote. There aren't many better schools than the University of Michigan. So being rebellious in my own way, although it looks conformist from the outside, I held them to that promise and they had no choice but to send me to Yale when I got in. So just to be clear on that. Also, um, you know, I I grew up in the um, 70s and 80s and I grew up in, in the Midwest in a fairly conservative area. Um, you know, upper middle class where the moms worked from home. My mom happened to support my father's medical practice. But at that time, my perception was um, the only way to have a real voice um, in your personal life and in your family life or control over your destiny was to earn your own money and have your own career. And there weren't many women that I knew of that had a job outside of the home. There was one woman who was a judge, Hilda Gage, and I looked up to her and my mother and father always encouraged me. I think they saw me as someone who was a reader, very goal oriented, very motivated person. And so they always encouraged me that I could have my own career. And I was rebelling by trying to be a woman who made her own money and had her own career because I thought that would give me liberation from the, the expectations and constructs of a fairly patriarchal society. How about? While you were in law school, you did some work for the uh, Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. What did you do there? I went to work on the tribe, motivated after taking property law class because of this. I was horrified by adverse possession that we could just you could just come in, squat on someone's land, and take it. And I was also very interested in the ongoing saga then um, in Israel and Palestine, um, which is still today, and ideas of a two-state solution. So I was thinking about contestations around land, and I thought it'd be really cool to go work on this reservation out west or in the Plain States. But when I got there, I ended up falling in love with commercial law. I could tell you the story of how I got involved in that, but it was literally on the reservation that I discovered how important in terms of power dynamics and autonomy and sovereignty it was uh, to be able to decide when people could or could not take your stuff. I get there to to the tribe and the the, the office... You have, to, you have to imagine this town, Eagle Butte, South Dakota, which is the town um, where the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe is located. I want to say it's just west of the Missouri River. That would make sense. It's about 100 miles due north of Pierre, which is the capital of South Dakota. And this down, the downtown of Eagle Butte was, I don't know, you know, a quarter of a mile long dusty road, one grocery store that had almost no fresh food, like five stores. And then there was one like gas station with a Dairy Queen and one restaurant there. Um, it's hard to really imagine. And we were living, they first put us up, up in a firehouse um, that smelled like diesel. And then they gave us an old farmhouse to live in. But the actual tribe office was inside of an old school, elementary school building, half of which was the Bureau of Indian Affairs which was run by the federal government. And then the other half was the tribe. Literally, I maybe at one time or two times ever went to the other side of the building with the Bureau of Indian Affairs employees. I think there was some sort of uh, sociological or political distinction, even though tribal members were working for the BIA. Anyway, so when I get there, Steve comes to me and he said, we have this problem on the reservation with alcoholism, which is in part maybe genetic he was talking about and could be sociological as well. And they were trying to control when bars could or couldn't be open. And they passed this law that bars could, I guess, not be open on Sundays. 
and way out at the edge of the reservation, enough to be far driving distance, enough for people to get in car accidents if they were drinking and driving. At the very edge of the reservation was a non-reservation owned bar. And they refused to follow this rule about being closed on Sundays. And so Steve, before we'd gotten there, who was a big guy at the time, he was like 6'2", maybe 300 pounds or more, and his other sheriffs, his sheriffs came with him, because he, um, and they went to the bar on a Sunday, and they shut the place down, and they boarded it up. And so Steve hands me a letter that, that was a few weeks old, and it said, you know, dear Mr. Emery, we are um, the bank that, let, that has, you know, has loans out with this bar. And you have shut the bar down, but we have a perfected security interest in the alcohol and all the other furnishings inside of that bar. So we want to know whether you on the whether the tribe under its law follows Article. Um, I'm sorry, it was not Article Two. It was Article Nine. I'm saying follows Article Nine of the UCC secured transactions or not. Um, and therefore, if it does, we want our stuff back. Long story made short, even though the tribe does d- did adopt Article 9 of the UCC, had done that, the answer to the question was more complicated because of civil forfeiture. I had to then learn about civil, that we had the right to seize that bar, similarly to the ability to seize a yacht that's involved in cocaine sales or cocaine transportation, even if the yacht owner who rented the yacht to the drug dealers had no idea. So long story made short, John, I went to the tribe to learn about property law and policy. And I left falling in love with Article 9 of the UCC, which set the set me in line for taking a class on Article 9 and then Elizabeth Warren's bankruptcy class. And the rest is history. I just love money stuff. Let's get to crime and money. My okay. copy of Big Dirty Money is a lovely inscription that reads at part, remember to follow the dirty money. <laughs> Looking at your writings over your money, whether dirty or not, figures prominently in your research. Has that become a central theme for you? I think to me, it started in my childhood when I thought, you know, the answer to almost any question, if you want something and you can't have it, the answer is we don't have, you know, we can't afford that. We don't have the money for that. And so it dawned on me, which I think should dawn on any child, if I can only get my grubby little hands on more money, I could have whatever I want. And no one would tell me no. So to some degree, money um, it becomes this, this thing that's both magic. Like money is like literally the magic wand. You imagine as a child, if I waved the wand, I could have all of the patent leather party shoes that I wasn't allowed to have. If I waved a magic wand, I could maybe go to Disney World. If I waved a magic, you know, it was magic. But at the same time, money was quite serious. Money was the reason why someone was struggling in poverty. Money is the reason that wars across the centuries um, have been been fought over access to riches, access to money. And, and so it was always for me, even when I was young, money and money is taboo. No one's ever supposed to talk about money. Right. You, the adults tell you don't talk about money. So it seemed like this thing that I definitely wanted to know more about. And then, you know, as in, uh, in college, I was an English major. And uh, some of my favorite writers, you know, some of the topics and some of the plot devices all revolve around money. I mean, you look at the late 19th century, early 20th century, when we're, um, or even before that, you look at English literature from the late 1700s, even, um, into, I'm thinking of Samuel Richardson, um, 
Pamela all the way up through, you know, Jane Austen to the even the into the 20th century American literature, where especially for women, the ways to advance in society involves having access to wealth, but the only path to wealth is through marriage. So I was always very interested in this. Also, this idea of people in, in, you know, Daniel Deronda, which is a fabulous book by George Eliot, he begins with someone who's lost her fortune. Um, and then what do you do? So all the, often the plot devices, or look at um, one of my favorite novels by Henry James, Portrait of a Lady, begins, I think, with someone wanting this young woman, Isabel Archer, to get an inheritance so he could see the wind beneath her sails, like it would give some freedom. So I was always very interested in the way money was fortune and misfortune, the way in which you sometimes see value by things that if you could sell something that it didn't really have value to you because it had value in a marketplace. So to me, money was a very figurative concept in the narratives I read. So they're, they're, I mean, I guess it's always been one of my one of my favorite topics, John. <laughs> so, but you, you've now recently focused on ill-gotten gains and problematic money and not, not the, the routine even, you know, not the sort of thing that is a gas station holdup, but large frauds and white-collar crimes. How much of a problem is white-collar crime in the United States? It depends on how you measure a problem. White-collar crime could be measured as a problem based on money. It's certainly a bigger problem than street theft or robbery. Like the, the One of the problems is we don't have a really good measure, and I've looked at many different um, places to come up with a figure, but at least the FBI says like uh, theft and robbery is about $16 billion a year, whereas white-collar crime... Um, just just bribery and embezzlement alone has been estimated to be anywhere between 300 and like 500 billion. I mean, the numbers range depending on the sources. So in terms so of wanna, dollars- I want to make sure I get this right. You're telling me the white color crime is in dollar figures at least 20 times the amount of what we think of as street crime. Yeah. I mean, this is um, the chapter in my book, Big Dirty Money. But there's a chapter called Harm Beyond Measure. It's really hard to know exactly how much white-collar crime there is. But yes, yes, you've looked at the dimension. Now, I think it's more harmful in other ways, and that's what um, – it's not just about the dollars. To me, what I try to talk about in Big Dirty Money is that white-collar crime is a tool for advancement, and it only expands the wealth gap between – that we've seen, you know, the, the tremendous inequality that Thomas Piketty talks about and um, Eduardo Saez and all the others who study inequality, um, to me, it's similar to what they talk about. I mean, one of the, the theories Piketty has is that wage increases grow uh, more slowly than cat returns on capital, right? And so his solution, and that, that's only going to mean that the rich get richer and the working class can't keep up and get poor. And his solution has to do with taxation. I look at white-collar crime through the same lens in that a lot of white-collar crime is also tax evasion. So the very little taxes um, that people have to lawfully pay, if they're not even paying those, that, has, that also exacerbates the wealth gap. But also that white-collar crime is only available to the very wealthy. You know, street crime is retail crime. It's, you know, you, you rob one gas station, you get a little bit of money. But white-collar crime is wholesale cr crime. You can get a whole lot 
of return off um, the same amount of time invested in a white in a white collar offense. And the likelihood of getting caught, it seems, is much less. And even if a person gets caught, they often get to keep uh, the people at the top of the pyramid, get, hide, you know, keep their hands clean, and they often keep their gains and just throw someone under the bus as um, the great television series uh, Succession. Logan Roy, the patriarch, says, we need a blood sacrifice. And they were going to throw his son-in-law under the bus. That's what happens time and time again. And by the way, that show didn't, you know, they were advised by experts on white-collar crime, um, so they knew what they were talking about. When I interviewed former Obama ethics or Norbison on this podcast, he said the idea of no one being above the law was aspirational, not real, but aspirational and integral to the American ideal. And we measure progress by the movement towards that aspirational goal. Is it still integral to the American ideal or we've just given up and accepted that we have a class-based legal system? And I ask because you recently wrote a toot, which I have now learned is the equivalent of a tweet that on Mastodon that said, no one is above the law. Sure, if by law you mean the power structure. So is it essential that we have this aspiration of being above the law? Do we just accept that we have a class-based legal system? I'm glad that you mentioned Norm Eisen. I just adore him. And I think that's so very well said that no one is above the law is an aspirational phrase. And to be clear, even though I put that out on Mastodon, I'm now on every platform. So I also probably tweeted it, it Facebooked it, spouted it or whatever, any, anywhere there is to to share that. Yeah, I mean, I what I was trying to say is the cynical side of the more aspirational, which is where we are now is, because I'm pretty annoyed at uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, but where, I are ne- where we are now is, yeah, I mean, currently the law is the power structure and the fact that he waited so long to appoint a special counsel to investigate Donald Trump was one of the biggest unforced errors I can think in the history of the administration of justice. I'm less cynical maybe than that quote. And I'm even, I was thinking a lot about us talking today um, and along the same veins about power being really law. I I tweeted out that very famous aphorism from Anatole France. Um, I'm sure you've heard it, but let me just say it. The law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. And I, I think to myself that it's important to point out um, that the law on its own is not going to bend toward justice. In other words, that the tendency of power is to be above the law. It's always a struggle. So we have to call that out when we see it and keep aspiring to fairness. I think it's really important. And it was always thus. It was always thus. And that's, it's not like it's a new observation that some people behave as if and get away with crime. It's just that, especially as I noted in Big Dirty Money, sometimes there's an effort to push back, but it ebbs and flows. So you mentioned former President Trump. I should say the podcast is nonpartisan. But I would certainly agree that at least playing fast and loose with the rules is a hallmark of Donald Trump's business career and presidency. Yet he was elected despite that. 
and after an infamous tape that had boast about being able to sexually abuse women. And even today, after the January 6th insurrection arrives, a sizable portion of the electorate would vote for. So given your Anatole France quote and what I just said about America's view of the former and to quote the current president, potential future president, what does that say about America today? Well, if I look at the <clears throat> quote that I read, uh, it just depicts society as if there's two types, right? There's the the the, the uh, poor who are starving and, and need to break the law, need to steal, need to be vagrants to survive. And then we're saying, well, it's okay to lock them up because it's not the law isn't unfair. We we don't let rich people do that anyway. But there's a whole swath of people in between the the super powerful and those who are homeless and destitute. And some of those people aren't very charitable. <laughs> and it doesn't, you know, that they they see themselves, they identify more if the law is only coming after the the weakest of society. They prefer to identify more with the wealthy and think that it's it, it's more complicated than a simple truism about about the laws being structured to either maintain the particular hierarchy or punish poverty. Um, there's all kinds of things in between. You mentioned you weren't a huge fan of the current attorney general, but I am going to, in a fantasy world, make you a huge fan because he has just put Jennifer Taub in charge of drafting the ultimate piece of legislation to reduce white-collar crime. And not only that, he has put all members of Congress under a spell that says you are going to pass Jennifer's bill. So what would be in the Taub anti-white-collar crime bill? Oh, boy. So the worst thing a person can do when they're asked a question is to is to uh, fight the hypothetical. But if you'll bear with me, I'm going to fight the hypothetical, and then I'm going to answer the exact question uh, that you asked. Uh, will you allow for it? Sure, but the reason the hypothetical was there to, was to not have an incremental answer, but an absolute answer. I'm going to give you an absolute answer, but I want to be clear that my problem with white-collar crime, I don't believe we can actually stop it, but my problem with white-collar crime isn't in and of itself the crime um, and the desire to lock, pe lock people up, right, punish them. I'm much more interested in prevention, so I'm going to tell you the, the, the law that I would like. But secondly, what's that even solving the white-collar crime legal problem doesn't solve the social problem, which is this. There are always going to be people who have more, who have more power, who still will get away with what I'm talking about. And that's why the law I really want passed is student loan forgiveness. And I want free higher education because the issue for me around white collar crime is that it, it impedes the ability of others to advance because we give... Anyway, but the law that I would want passed... Um, I'm actually working on a paper right now on this that um, I'm submitting soon. I want to amend the False Claims Act, which is a, a law passed by Abraham Lincoln that punishes people who cheat the government. So it's government contractors who commit fraud against the government. That law gives um, standing to ordinary people, to whistleblowers, to often rat out their employers and bring a case against someone cheating the government. Then they, they bring it under seal. The Department of Justice can choose whether to take the case forward or to let 
this private plaintiff, this whistleblower, bring the case. Either way, they can get up to 30% of the recovery. This is hugely important. It's, it's like the, the most effective weapon in the arsenal to combat fraud. But right now, John, it only applies to fraud against the federal government. I want to expand it to allow for people, whistleblowers to have key TAM, that's what it's called, key TAM standing, to initiate, bring forward, or get bounty fees, as is the case, when it's defrauding of consumers or defrauding of other businesses. I'll tell you why I think this would be the most effective thing. I think it gets and nips fraud in the bud. It nips white collar crime in the bud while it's happening. I think it also gets over the hump of, even though I'm talking about civil actions that could be brought with these whistleblowers, criminal cases can also be brought by the government because one of the hardest things we see in the decision to bring a federal uh, white collar case and to win one is intent knowing what was in the minds of the people who were involved and knowing who was involved. And this is something that only insiders have knowledge of. I think this would be, be hugely successful. We have a lot of investors and business people and private investors as well who listen to this podcast. Do you think there are indicia of white-colored crime or business fraud that could be spot from the outside? You mentioned finding mindset or center is, is an insider game. But are there early warning signs that outsiders can, can see and spot and therefore steer away from the situation? Are you talking about short sellers who want to make money off of this or outsiders? Or, or, or people who just want to steer away entirely? Both. I mean, they, I wasn't thinking about short sellers, but certainly if you have a suspicion of fraud in a public company, you might want to both take advantage of it by selling it short and letting it be known, but just generally, most people just want to stay away from messes. I honestly think fast growth is often going to create mistakes and fraud. Because I think when people, when businesses grow really fast, they don't always have their computer systems or personnel or everything keeping up. Um, I think that, you know, one thing that was also helpful not having a, if, so, if a company doesn't have a chief compliance officer, I just found out, I think, I don't know if it's true. Someone just told me today that SVB didn't have a chief compliance officer. That's a sign. Other signs, you look at someone like Madoff, the accounting firm is in a strip mall. I mean, there's some things that might be, you know, if you look at the past, the key indicators. I think the other thing, in, in addition to fast growth, one of these yank and rank cultures that we saw at Enron and other places um, that started, I think, with Jack Welch. Um, Yank and Rank can create an atmosphere for fraud because if you're that's that's where you tell people like every year they have to rank the their managers rank anyone below them and they have to fire the lower ten percent. That gives you a great opportunity to fire people who are questioning authority, even authority within the firm where there's corruption, and it would no one would ever know. And so it also keeps people quiet. So I would think you know I would I, I think culture is really important. But I think the most important indicator of fraud would be who's the leader. Like, you know, what do you what what do you really think about them? How do they treat, you know, how do they um, how do they respond to tough questions um, brought by analysts? And ultimately, I think the bottom line is: you know, Are you com comfortable with how they how they make their money? Do you really understand it? What's your saying to you right now? What are you passionate about in life? So there's two things. I'm really into my um, new podcast. Um, I think I just mentioned it. it's called Booked Up. I just started it in December. I'm sure you feel the same way about yours. 
it gives me an opportunity to meet um, interesting people and talk with them about their work. So that's I'm I'm really happy about. Plus, it forces me to read a new book every week, which I might feel I don't I'm not I don't have the right to. I should be doing something else. I think the other thing I'm really passionate about is a book I'm writing now. Um, not surprisingly, it's about money. Also, um, the working title is Tax Games, Loopholes, Revolving Doors, and Island Getaways. And for research, John, I got to visit I got to visit Cayman and the Isle of Jersey and other, you know, so I'm doing, you know, which was not not tough, tough uh, travels for me. And I'm meeting on the record and off the record with people in the administration and uh, Capitol Hill and, you know, other experts on tax. So what's really exciting for me is to immerse myself in the history of tax policy in America and coming up with some really cool, interesting people from the past. So I'm excited about somehow pulling together all this research, reading more. I've got like 50, I have 30 interviews or so now. I want to get up at least up to 50 and sort of pulling it all together into a fun Fun book where people, I hope that they don't, I hope it's not full of habaneros, but I hope it's a combination between, you know, popcorn and habaneros, like exciting things and also infuriating things. And I've, I've got to ask now, since it was for the book, were you deducting your travel to Jersey and Canaan? I have not filed my tax return yet, but um, I don't know that I can deduct it because I think part of it was funded. I, I, well, it depends if I got reimbursed for any of it. Let's put it that way. So if I already, the parts I got reimbursed for already, I can't deduct, but anything I didn't get reimbursed for, I will. Sounds like a good deal. Let's finish with some short questions and answers. How do you relax? One of the things I really like to do every morning is uh, my husband and I, who's an artist, um, we now, given my schedule, since I'm not commuting up to Vermont and I'm teaching here in Springfield, we have coffee together every morning. So it's really nice. We sit in the living room and we talk. I used to not want to do this. I was the kind of person in the relationship who's like, I talked to you last week. You still want to talk to me? You know, I'm busy, busy, busy. And now Michael has taught me to sort of slow down. Uh, we kind of get through stuff, talk about what our week looks like, what the day looks like. And it's it's one of the most relaxing things. What music do you listen to? I have different playlists depending on my on my mood. Um you know, sometimes I like, the, you know, the old classics like Bruce Springsteen. Recently, I've been listening a lot to Amy Mann. Um, but I have, I created this playlist um, the other day that um, are the like, songs that were my favorites from all the decades of my life. So, you know, I start back into the, when I remember in the uh, early 70s um, and then up into the present. So it just can just, you can just suddenly be shocked. I, you know, I always love Elvis Costello, though. You know, I, sometimes I'll just listen to an album. And then I have tried to become a Swifty. I'm not so good at it, but I do like some of um, some of Taylor Swift's music. I love the song Antihero because, you know, that one line from it. Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. I think that's really funny because I whenever I'm procrastinating, I sing that to myself. What are you reading right now? Probably something with your podcast. Oh, so, Yeah. What I'm reading right now is Spare by Prince Henry. I'm also reading, gosh, I've got so many. I'm also reading a really fantastic book by Lita McCulloch-Seletsky called The Kneeling Man. It's about to come out in April. Her father was on the balcony at the Lorraine Motel when MLK was shot. And he, I'm not giving too much away because it's right at the beginning, but he was an undercover 
he was an undercover cop when he was there. So it's really about her kind of, and he's still living, but her trying to figure out, kind of figure out what was going on in his life, how she finally got him to talk about that experience many years later. It's a really good memoir. If you could be on vacation right now, where would it be? Absolutely. The Cayman Islands. I mean, I went there for research, but I just, the beach is really great. I can see why it's attractive. And then I could go back and do some more research. It's really beautiful there. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, this is your last question. You get to tell everyone one thing. What would it be? Choose kindness. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik with our special guest, little Professor Jennifer Town. Jen, thanks so much. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.